is a beautiful, cool fall day here on the west coast of Florida. November 27th, my name is Joel Tillis, and you are in the Soul Trap. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in and listen. We trust that wherever, whenever this broadcast finds you, finds you in good health, good spirits, and most of all, on that good and narrow way. I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Watched some football, ate too much. Most of all, spent time with your family, giving thanks, enjoying the good things of God. And uh, I trust that you're looking forward to a, a good Christmas season and then a wonderful new year. Better, greater, grander, good things ahead. If God be for us, who can be against us? All right. Well, we trust that uh, we trust that you're enjoying your day wherever this broadcast finds you. Some of you are able to listen to it uh, very, very soon. Some of you catch up, but that's all right. We're always glad to hear from you, and we enjoy the fellowship. Please do take the time both to share the Soul Trap only with people that you think would be interested. We're not trying to build a brand or or build a uh, a following. We we want more. I don't know, to unite a family, people that are thinking the same way, exploring the same issues, studying the same things. So do share the soul trap and then make sure to touch base with us from time to time. You know, I try to get back in touch with everyone who calls or emails. And as we've grown, that gets a little bit more difficult. But uh, it's important to me that you know that you're important to me and I enjoy the fellowship and the fun and and just all the the times that we're able to speak, and I like to hear from you and your testimonies and and what the Lord is doing in your life. And many of you are able to bird dog us and put us onto things that that we haven't even studied ourselves. And so it's just a great give and take form and relationship that we have. Today I'm going to read a little section from a man that I have been reading about behind just a little bit, uh, and a man I certainly don't agree with on a lot of things, R.J. Rush Dooney, uh, from a series of writings that he had, position papers that he had. But I read this in connection with uh, a conversation I had with my daughter the other day. She uh, came home and we were talking. Uh, She was in a history class. She's dual enrolled in her senior year of high school and then taking classes here at uh, our community college here in the area, uh, which is connected to the University of South Florida. It's a state college of Florida. is a uh, sort of a prerequisite college for getting into USF. And um, she was struck by sitting in class. She went up to the professor afterwards, and uh, I guess my daughter has a little bit of me in her, and she said, you know, they were, they were studying early Byzantium history, late Roman history. And uh, she said, you know, uh, professor, you continually use the term Christianity when you should be using the term Catholicism. And his response to her was, well, you know, potato, potato. And she said, well, would you feel that way if I confounded Sunni and Shia Muslims or if I lumped all the schools of Hinduism together? How come is it when it comes to other religions, you want there to be specificity, but when it comes to Christianity and Catholicism, you just lump the two together? So uh, the kind professor apologized, said, you're right. And my daughter and I got to talking about how that oftentimes when it comes to the things of Christianity, there is a generalization rather than specificity. And we branched out from that conversation even more so than just beyond Christianity, but in general, she she was in the class and they were some of the kids were talking about what the belief, what you have to do to go to heaven. And I said, did anybody even know how to define what heaven was, where it was located? 
generalization is is a is a dangerous thing when it comes to important issues. And I'll give you an example, an illustration by way of example. Suppose that you and I were sitting here in my office, and my assistant or secretary walked in and said, "Hey, Pastor, you know, be careful when you go out to your car. There is a dog out there, a stray dog." The word "dog" it is a general word. If she means a little lap dog, a little fluffy poodle, then no harm, no foul. But if what is out there is a Rottweiler or a pit bull or a rabid Doberman pincer that is dangerous and bloodthirsty, well then being specific is very, very important. And so it is when it comes to much of our life. We tend to settle for the general. In fact, I have a quote here by a historian by the name of Robert Conquest. He says, the common addiction to general words tend to produce mind blockers and reality distortion. The common addiction to general words tends to produce mind blockers and reality distortion. Therefore, beware of catchphrases to describe deep issues. What a great statement in truth. And as I was thinking along those lines, I was thinking about the term racism, a term that has become very popular within the last 50 years, but such a general term that it's really hard to grasp. We think so shallow today about race. We think so surface today about the real issues that are facing our nation. That every once in a while, even though we might not agree with somebody, it's nice to have a breath of fresh air to read somebody who's actually thinking below the surface. I want to share with you this little position paper, this little essay, so to say, written by R.J. Rushdoony. The title is called The New Racism, Written July 1980. Racism is a relatively new fact on the world scene. In earlier eras, not race, but religion was the basis of discrimination. Although religious history has been marred by ugly violence against other religious groups, and the history of the Christian church is no exception to this, there is a notable fact which is often forgotten. Missionary faiths and supremely Christianity normally seek to win other groups, not oppress them. And the missionary impulse has also provided in many eras a favorable cause for a friendly approach. In the modern era, as Christianity's influence receded and science began to govern together with humanism, biology came to predominate over theology. The difference between men were seen increasingly as biological and racial rather than religious. The earlier physical anthropologists made very precise and detailed physical studies of all peoples in order to establish the physical differences between races. The theory of evolution fueled this developing scientific racism and added still another important factor. Many theories begin to hold to multiple origins for the human race, whereas in Scripture, all men are descendants of Adam, in evolutionary thought, all men are possibly descendants from very differing evolutionary sources. 
common descent in Adam meant a common creation, nature, and ultimately responsibility under God. The idea of multiple origins proved ultimately divisive. The human race was no longer the human race. It was a collection of possibly human races, a very different doctrine. It is important to recognize that racism was in origin a scientific humanistic doctrine. Whenever a scientific doctrine is discarded, as witness the idea the acquitted inheritance of environmental influences, the old scientific doctrine, as it lingers on in popular thought, is blamed on religion or popular superstition. The origins of racism are in very highly respectable scientific theorists. The fact that men like Houston Stuart Chamberlain, a British admiral's son and son-in-law of Richard Wagner, took this scientific literature to develop what became the foundation of Nazi thought does not eliminate its scientific origins. The defeat of the Nazis did not end racism. Instead, it has again become respectable and widespread. We must remember that studies of Hitler's Germany indicate that his support came from liberals, Democrats, socialists, and the intellectual community. Scholars like Erich von Kuhnelt Lindelem have ably exposed the myth of the conservative or rightist origin for Hitler's support. The fact of Hitler's antipathy to Christianity helped enlist support for him. The new racism is widespread and common to many peoples and to every continent. It has now become a part also of the religious vocabulary of many churchmen. Thus, in almost every seminary today, pompous professors rail against a missions program which would export, quote, the white mentality and European modes of thought. What is the white mentality? And what is the European mode of thought as against the human common to all man? If it is specifically white and European, it must be common to the pre-Christian European as a racial factor. The pre-Christian Saxons, for example, practiced human sacrifice and more. Much more could be said about pre-Christian Europeans, but I have no desire to be flooded with angry letters, which I will discard without answer. No race born of Adam has a good history. Now let me read that line to you again. No race born of Adam has a good history. This is the biblical fact, and it is the historical fact. The Western mind, common to Europe and America, is a product not of race, but of culture, and more specifically, religious culture. Elements of it, none too good, go back to the barbarian peoples of Europe. Other aspects from Greek philosophy, again, none too good. The Greeks described all non-Greeks as barbarians on cultural, not racist grounds. The Western mind and culture in all its advances is a product of biblical religion. It is a religious, not a racial product. A generation ago, a pope with humane intentions said, quote, spiritually, we are all Semites. Despite his humane intentions, he was wrong. 
Arabs are Semites, but we are not Arabic in our faith and culture. He would have been equally wrong had he said Hebrews or Jews. The culture of the West is not the property of any race or people in its origin. It is biblical. True, much sin is present in Western culture. True, such sin needs to be condemned. But the mind of the West bears the imprint of the Bible. It is not understandable on any other terms. Today, however, men speak of the white mentality, the Asiatic soul, the African mind. Some educators are insistent on the need to recognize and give status in schools to what they call, quote, black English. Implicit in all of this is a racist view of man. Races are seen as the sources of varying kinds of logic and reason. To deny the validity of the concept of a white mind and an African mind or an Asiatic mind is seen as reactionary, imperialistic, and evil. The mentality of a people, however, is not a product of race, but of religion and the culture of that religion. The key factor is always religion. There is a hidden but insane pride among those who oppose exporting the, quote, white mentality. Although such men would never dare say it explicitly or even think it, what they are saying implicitly is that other races are not up to comprehending the white mentality. In fact, one brilliant black student told me with wry humor that he could always count on a high grade for minimum work from a white liberal professor. The man would regard him as inferior, but would never have the courage to admit as much and would accordingly give him a good grade. All talk of different mentalities has a patronizing perspective. It also says that race, not sin, is the problem of other peoples and their cultures. Because of the new racism, we now have a growing body of religious literature aimed at the seminary student. Remember now, this was written in 1980. Aimed at the seminary student, pastor, missionary, which talks about contextualization. Supposedly, the only way to communicate the gospel to other races is by giving priority to the context over biblical faith and confessional statement. The impetus for contextualization has come from the Theological Education Fund, set up in 1957, wait for it now, gang, by the Rockefeller Foundation. Contextualization calls also for an emphasis on the struggle for justice in terms of liberation theology, a form of Marxism, and existentialistic responses to historical moments in the third world. Contextualization places a heavy emphasis on human need rather than on God's infallible word. Its mission is thus contemporary and social, not theological and supernatural. Contextualists of all theological stripes shift their language from that of Scripture to the jargon spawned by the Theological Education Fund. Closely related to this in the area of biblical is the area of biblical translations 
and dynamic equivalence theory, now common to most Bible societies and translation groups. This doctrine of which Eugene A. Nita is an exponent, quote, translates the Bible into a culture and its ideas. This can mean giving an historical account a psychoanalytical or mythological meaning. Instead of reshaping the culture, the Bible is translated into the culture. Such a doctrine makes the culture, in effect, the unerring word, not the Bible. The culture thus corrects or amends the Bible, not the Bible, the culture. Jacob von Bruggen, in the book The Future of the Bible, points out, quote, The dynamic equivalence translation theory owes its influence and effect to the blending of modern theological prejudices regarding the Bible with data borrowed from communication theory, cultural anthropology, and modern sociology, rather than to insights from linguistics. The implication of this new racism are far-reaching. Instead of working to change a people, we have a static and racist view of people and their culture. It is the Bible and the mission which must change, not the people. We must teach a, quote, black English, if any at all. A black, brown, or yellow Christianity, if any at all. It takes only a brief excursion into liberation theology, contextualization, and like doctrines to realize that it is not Christianity at all which is taught, but a counterfeit. Relevance is sought, not to the Lord and his word, but to fallen man and his racial heritage. Such is not the gospel. It is the new racism. The new racism passes, however, for vital, relevant Christianity. It is widely promoted by seminaries and missionary organizations. It encourages races like individuals to trumpet the existentialist slogan, I want to be me. The historical goal is racial realization. Providentially, the early missionaries to Europe coming from North Africa, Asia Minor, and the Mediterranean world generally had no such regard for the European mind. They regarded it as unregenerate and in need of being broken and redeemed. All the plagues and evils of the European mind are products of the fallen man and the relics of a barbarian culture, not of Christ and his word. All that is good in the European mind is a result of Christian culture, not of race. The words of Paul are a sharp rebuke to all who want men to glory in their blood, race, or history, for 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? In the Southern Baptists, in the Presbyterian, on the political stage today, there is this constant drumbeat of racism. It's an amazing thing that since... We've had a black president of the United States of America. We have had more racial tension than we have ever had. Systemic racism is a term thrown around, and I don't even know that the average person could define in specificity what it means to be a racist, prejudiced, 
bigot or stereotype. Systemic racism is not the issue. Racism is not the issue. The issue is sin. I fear some of our religious groups, some of our religious denominations are behind the times a bit, dealing with the superficial, dealing with the general. And what is happening? Well, as Robert Conquest said, it is their addiction, their addiction to the general words that has produced mind blockers and reality distortion. What I have said before, I say again. There is a reality distortion going on. What is happening in the inner cities of America is not white systemic racism. It is sin. It is sin that has been justified, institutionalized, sin that has been culturalized in many ways. And until we're willing to see beyond the new brand of racism for what really lies at root, there's not going to be any hope and certainly any peace. But what is needed is the addressing of sin, the addressing of the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ, and the hope of man by way of faith in Christ. An interesting little article about racism, new racism, and what really is at stake in America today.